1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Welcome back to Power Hour, since it's been a while, I think over a month, but we are back. We'll keep coming back, and at one point or another, we should be back weekly. But for now, we're back when we're back, and today, we're back with some really cool material. I, I I always love it when we can get guests who talk about different cutting-edge technologies, both because the technologies are interesting, but also because I love hearing about new ways in which the human mind can transform nature to benefit human beings. And uh, recently I met someone who had some really interesting insights in two Different areas he he's been uh, very disparate areas in certain ways. one is the area of produced water, which is a whole issue that we'll get into of the water that emerges from industrial processes that you need some way of disposing of or dealing with in a safe way, and then also something called micronuclear power. so his name is John Grizz Deal. He is the CEO of Nine Power and he's been involved in a lot of different research projects over the years and he has a lot of insight as well as some cool stories. So we'll be talking about energy technology, particularly the produced water technology and micro nuclear power with John Deal on the other side.
0: Hour hour because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: We are joined now by John Grizz CEO of Nine Power. John, welcome to Power Hour.
0: Oh, thanks, Alex. Nice to be here.
1: All right. We have two big subjects in the news today, so uh, we rarely get such distinct subjects from the same guest, but you raised both of them when we talked in the past, so I want to talk about both of them. So we're going to start off with produced water, uh, which is something that's in the news all the time, but we haven't discussed nearly enough on the show. First of all, just for the layman, what is produced water?
0: So produced water in this context is water that comes up the, 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 you know, with oil and gas out of the formation. Um, every time that you bring up a barrel of oil or a cubic foot of uh, natural gas, you're going to get a bunch of water from that oil-bearing formation uh, along with the hydrocarbons. And uh, but the problem with produced water is that it's mixed in with the hydrocarbons. So from the, the producer's standpoint, it's trash, right? It's stuff that they don't want to deal with. Uh, and they, they want to get to the gold, or in this case, the oil or the gas. Um, but the, the issue around it is that because it's been sitting down there for millions of years with the you know various hydrocarbons and other things, metals, and could be radioactive materials in some cases, uh, it's highly contaminated. So you can't just dump this stuff on the ground. Uh, although in some countries that's exactly what they do but but in general uh produced water is you know looked at as uh the waste product from oil and gas extraction it's naturally occurring and because you're bringing up something that is harmful uh by itself you know to the environment to humans i e hydrocarbons uh the water takes on those attributes too so
1: so how much is this? does this take place in all procedures? Because we hear it often in the context of uh, injection for hydraulic fracturing.
0: Well, all right, so you gotta separate that out because produced water happens, it's always happened, right? I mean, you punch a hole in the ground. You know, when Jed Clampett uh, was shooting at some food and up came a, (laughs) uh, a, you know, amount of uh, bubbling crude, there was water mixed in with that bubbling crude. Uh, So this really has nothing to do with enhanced oil recovery or with drilling, and fracking is just another way to drill. So, so it's just water that's down there in the formation. Uh, you're gonna get a variable amount of water depending on the formation, the age of the well, uh, your geography, you know, the extraction method, i.e., how are you pumping it up. But it has nothing to do with how the well, well, let's say nothing. Uh, pr- formation production water has nothing to do with how you drill the well or if you fracked it. That's a different set of water. And so in, you know, injection methods to release hydrocarbons, commonly called hydraulic fracturing, you've got water and some minor chemicals mixed in with the water. And uh, basically that just acts as a way to carry sand and other things to keep the formation open. That water comes back 80% 80% of it within the first 30 days during the completion stage of a well, and that's called frack flowback or hydraulic fracturing flowback. So that comes back up, and in some cases, the, the producers can reuse that flowback uh, you know, if they've got multiple wells on one pad, especially using horizontal drilling. That means that you know, it may take 4 to 8 million gallons of water to frack a well, but you can reuse it right there on the next well on the next well and the next well. Now, at some point that water's got to be cleaned up but it's different than formation-produced water, and so that's, you know, that's really the emphasis. Um, you know, the amount of frac flowback, you know, even two years ago during aggressive drilling operations, accounted for less than half percent of all the water coming associated with with oil and gas. So, in other words, it, it's not the frac flowback that 's the big challenge the big challenge is naturally occurring water mixed in with hydrocarbons, and that comes up uh, you know during the you know after completion when you 're actually producing oil or gas out of a well
1: that 's fascinating i i don 't think people know that in terms of the, that percentage or even remotely that percentage
0: well and it 's you know ninety eight percent of the oil and gas industry, the total oil and gas industry. Waste stream, 98% is nothing but formation production water uh, in terms of volume. And, you know, this is a 100 a to 150 billion barrels a year. Uh, that's the best number we've got. We don't have great numbers for China, uh, for parts of Africa, because they don't report it the way that we're required to in the U.S. Um, the, the U.S. has a very, very tight control over uh, formation produced water. Uh, we do a really good job of not only tracking it, but dealing with it. Um, so so that 100, 150 billion barrels, and those are 42-gallon oil barrels, uh, of production water coming up with oil and gas uh, account for 98% of the entire waste stream from all oil and gas operations up and down the stream and cost industry somewhere between 50 and $75 billion a year. So this is, You know, this is the only real big significant in terms of volume waste stream that comes out of the industry, out of the oil and gas industry.
1: So how does this relate to the issue of of injection wells? Because we hear about how, you know, know, injecting wastewater in places like Oklahoma can lead to seismic events.
0: Well, so so, uh, there's a couple of things that you have to understand about the oil and gas industry. First of all, they're very good at what they do. They've got this down to literally a science. Um, You know, you you stick a hole in the ground, metaphorically, and money comes screaming out of it. Um, It's pretty cool. Uh, Everything that's happened in the last hundred years around the oil and gas industry is to make it even safer. Uh, Oil and gas production on its own is, you know, trivial compared to one volcano blowing up or something like that in terms of emissions, in terms of damage to the environment. But it's man-made. So if we're smart people, uh, you know, if we're sentient beings, we should be able to minimize our impact. So environmental regulations uh, have gotten to the point, especially in the U.S., where, you know, the oil and gas industry is pretty clean. One of the ways that they're clean is by taking this formation-produced water and injecting it very deep into the ground. You know, we're talking miles deep into the ground, way below the water table. Way below the oil and gas, right? They don't want to contam. they don't want to like pump the water back down the well that they got it out of because then all they're doing is, you know, making water more watery oil. Is that even a term? Anyhow, they're just increasing the water content of the oil they're bringing back up. So specialized wells are called class two injection wells and they're basically garbage wells. Uh, they're regulated uh, at the state level and in some states. Depending on you know, how they hit the uh, various geologies, uh, you know the EPA guidelines uh, are superior to state rights on some of these things. But in general, there's a, a bunch of wells out there, and the oil and gas industry take this formation-produced water, and they dump down it. All right, there's nothing wrong with that, uh, except, A, it's expensive uh, on a per-barrel basis – to move that water to these wells because the wells, again, can't be in the oil field or rarely are they, you know, right adjacent to a well. So they've got to truck it. Uh, Setting up pipelines, you know, depending on the distance, maybe more economical. So there's lots of places where there's water, you know, produced water or wastewater uh, pipeline set up to go to these injection wells. There are other issues, though. Uh, You know, famously, there was a well... Uh, in southeast New Mexico that was drilled that was supposed to take 20,000 barrels of, of production water, formation-produced water, whatever you want to call it, a day. And uh, because of the, the amount of calcium and junk in the water, uh, it, it could only take about 2,500 barrels a day. So they've got this asset, if you will, a factory – uh, they're supposed to do 20,000 units of something, and you know, they're doing you know, maybe 12 or 13%. So, so that's one issue about these injection wells or disposal wells. Another issue is that depending on the geology and the pressure, not the, necessarily the volume of the water you're putting down in these injection wells, but the pressure under which they're put in the ground, you can cause fault slippage, and we feel that as an earthquake. So this is very limited to specific geographies. Um, you know, Colorado's had uh I think one noticeable incident in Weld County, and that was a couple of years ago. Uh and it had to do again with the pressure under which this water was being injected into these deep wells. Oklahoma is a completely different story. You know, the geology there is is such in, in part of the state that um, you know, they were causing earthquakes and continue to do so. Oklahoma's responded, uh, Mary Fallon, the governor of Oklahoma, and her staff has responded by saying, you know, we want to reduce the volume of water by 40%. Well, that's a good goal. So what do you do with it? You treat it, and we'll talk about that in a second. But but uh, it turned out that it was a pressure, really, that's the issue, not the volume of water going down there. Uh, and... And as far as environmental concerns, and keep in mind, and I've said this to you before, Alex, I'm a conservationist, right? That's a that's different than an environmentalist. Conservationist believes in the wise and active use of a resource. So, you know, conservationists run uh, the forestry program for the USDA, you know, trees are crops, right? We're not saying uh, that all areas should be, uh, you know, should be mined for timber, but there are lots of areas that are set aside just to to grow trees. So we have what? Um, same thing with, with oil and gas and water resources. Uh, the idea is to do as best you can and, and to sort of keep getting better. Well, there's a new trend in produced water that's, you know, that's been gathering steam, steam in the last 10 years, and that's treating produced water. Um, and, it, and it can be difficult depending on where the produced water, the formation production water came from to do, and it can be expensive, but it can also be cheap and in a lot of cases cheaper than hauling the water to a disposal well and injecting it into the into this uh deep disposal well so if we treat the water not only did the oil and gas industry save some money uh hey we've got a new water resource and that's pretty cool um so 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 there's there's lots of movement now in produced water and uh it's it's definitely something that states are taking a stronger and stronger look at um not in terms of environmental standards, but in terms of, uh, you know, dealing with water rights and water issues and methods for treating produced water. Uh, you know, this has become a, a major topic in the last two years.
1: So what, what are some of the inherent challenges of, of treating the produced water? And then what, what's the state of the art in terms of being able
0: to do it? So, so uh, produced water has got uh, basically anything you can find in the earth in it. Right, and, and it's it's stuff again. It's naturally occurring. Um, you know, oil is a naturally occurring thing, but oil also is comp- comprised of uh, organic hydrocarbons. That's how we get oil, right? Um, you know, little tiny organic things uh, broke down, and over time, time and pressure produced this this resource that we burn uh, or use for lots of different things, like like making plastics. So, so the water is going to have. Those kind of constituents in it. And this includes a whole class of volatile organic organic compounds uh, that are referred to as BTECs. And BTEC stands for benzene, taulene, ethylbenzene, and xylene. All you need to know is the B part, right? Benzene's not good for you. Um, and, and when you pump gas, that smell uh, emanating from the gas pump is benzene, right? And so humans are used to being around it. It's just that if you ingest it, if you drink it, you know you're there's some really detrimental health effects to that so you've got to get rid of the btex that's the the biggest challenge for dealing with produced water there are other classes of things in there uh inorganics which include metals things like arsenic and chromium and mercury and again it's all in it's all in the planet earth and so of course you're going to have it in this production water because that's that's what's down there uh sometimes you will get uh, organisms that amazingly can manage to live in that kind of environment. Uh, so there's biologics there. And then the last class that you really have to worry about is naturally occurring radioactive materials, which we just abbreviate, uh, and we call it norm N O R M. So this is the same kind of stuff that you can get out of a, you know, what a, what a rancher would call a, a sour water well. Uh, you know where he's dug a water well, and he's getting a bunch of stuff up that makes it, you know, un- undrinkable. The difference for the oil and gas industry is that it's just an enormous volume. You know, it's huge. So I think in terms of treatment, you know, step one, the oil and gas industry has to come to grips with the fact that it's a very large problem, and large doesn't necessarily mean impossible to solve. Because it would again, it would be great if we could treat some or a bunch of that produced water and then use it for agriculture or discharge it to a river. Um, You know, we're we're mining uh, oil and gas. Uh, Gas used to be thought of as a waste product, uh, natural gas, and and now it's not. We figured out a way to efficiently capture that. Uh, And I think the third way for the oil and gas industry is going to be mining water. So how do you clean it? Well, you 've got to treat all these constituents, all these contaminants, uh, the organics and organics, norm, and biologics, in a different way uh, so uh, you know there's no black box right it 's not a pure water filter uh, in your home, you know, which actually doesn 't remove very much, it turns out um, because it 's coming from a generally a clean water source. So you need to deal with the volatile organics. You've got to deal with the metals. You've got to deal with the radioactive materials, and you've got to deal with the biologics. And each requires a slightly different treatment process. Well, traditionally, if somebody wanted to treat produced water, in other words, they were not going to you know, truck it to an injection well, what they would do uh, it varies. But, but there's a, a, two or three different things they would do. One is they might take it to an evaporation pond. And, uh, you know, this is a big hole in the ground, maybe an acre or two acres in size. And you dump the water in there. And then over time, the water evaporates. uh, And that's a pretty good way to clean the water, right? It's just evaporating up into the air. Uh, Maybe you'll, you know, have some localized increase in humidity levels. But generally, it's going back into the quote-unquote, you know, water cycle that way. Um, What you're left with, though, is kind of this... Soupy sludge of disgusting things, metals, organics, you know, oil particles, all that stuff. Um, Another way that people have tried to deal with it is simply by filtering it before dumping it into the well. And you know, this is not just a metaphor, but it's it's exactly like trying to filter oil and water mixed together through you know a a tube sock, uh, you know, that you wear to the gym. Um, And and that is the state of the art in a lot of places. So, what they're doing is they're grabbing free flow, you know, free floating oil and grease and some sand. That's a good pre treatment, but that's not treatment because uh, the metals, uh, you know, could be floating in there. They're going to get past even, you know, half a micron in size, you know, filter sock. And they actually call these things socks. That's why it's funny. Uh, You know, and they're used uh, all the time. Then what do you do with the sock, right? Now, what do we do with all these dirty, you know, filters? Uh, There's other methods like, uh, distillation right that 's a great idea you know that 's taking the idea from the pond, which is a natural evapotranspiration process where you 're dumping a bunch of contaminated water in, and the water molecules you know they evaporate uh into the air and then you 're left with sludge. Well, you can also do that uh mechanically or from an energy additive standpoint and and uh the problem is that it costs a lot of money because you know if if you tell an oil guy. We're going to help you treat your water, but the first thing you have to do is set up a power plant. You're done talking to that oil guy, right? They're done, right? That, they're not out there to burn their product. They're out there to get it and take it to market. So so it's it, although it's really good, distillation is incredibly inherently expensive to do. Um, people have, have used things like activated carbon, which, again, goes back to your pure water filter. The problem with activated carbon is that you transfer Uh, the contaminants that were in the water to the carbon and now what do you do with the carbon and in many cases you've increased uh, the volume of waste uh, because now you've got all this nasty uh, activated carbon and activated carbon is made from you know wood that's been carbonized just like charcoal uh, or uh, famously coconut shells which sounds like some monty python thing going on but it's not Uh, you know uh, activated carbon is a very common thing it's it's not cheap, but it's not incredibly expensive. It may be, you know, six, seven bucks a pound or something like that. Uh, and so people have used activated carbon. All this is leading up to, gee, what do we do as an industry in the US? And, and the Department of Energy did a really cool thing about 10 years ago. Uh, and this was the result of a big project at the New Mexico Department of Energy labs at Sandia and Los Alamos, where uh, Senator Pete Domenici, uh, pushed through Congress an earmark to fund research into dealing with produced water from oil and gas industry and brackish water, which is simply salt water. Uh, you know, that's kind of nasty. You couldn't drink it. You got to do something with it. Uh, and he pushed that through, uh, gee, in the, in the early 2002, 2003, uh, time period. Um, so, so, uh, so Senator Pete Domenici did that, and Sandia took on, what do we do with the salt? Because there's there's also uh, one of the kinds of metals in there are calcium salts and, and magnesium salts and things like that. And, and then Los Alamos uh, was a recipient of some capital – uh, from the state and over various years, uh, grants from the department of energy to deal with everything else. So in, in some sense, I and mean, it was not incredibly official, but Sandia was looking at salt and how do we do things better than reverse osmosis, which I've yet to bring up, but you know, that's another way you could, you could deal with, uh, produced water. The problem with reverse osmosis is that it's, uh, it's not really efficient after you get above sort of seawater levels, So seawater is sort of 30,000, 35,000 parts per million salt dissolved in water. And and reverse osmosis works pretty good. You know, you'll get, uh, you'll be able to concentrate that salt and get reject of maybe 30 or 40%. So for every uh, 10 gallons of water that goes through an RO system, you're going to end up with 30 or 40% of highly concentrated salt that's got to be disposed of. And guess where they take it? those class two injection wells that we mentioned earlier, which are, which are everywhere. There, there are tens of thousands of these wells spread across the U.S. Um, the, the guys at Los Alamos, though, said, look, let's pull this problem apart, and let's figure out the best method for treating each class of constituents. And so this was a very long project run by uh, Dr. Jerry Sullivan. Uh, Jerry's been you know, involved in water treatment. She's actually now the, uh, governor of New Mexico's advisor on water issues. Uh, she's been at Los Alamos forever and started at New Mexico Tech. And she ran, a kind of a unique project between Los Alamos and University of Texas and New Mexico Tech to come up with a way of dealing with, uh, the volatile organics, the metals, uh, and, and, uh, once you handle those two things, it makes it a lot easier to deal with things like salt uh, and even radioactive materials. So, so I won 't get too deep into the technology, but there's been an evolution in, in how to do this that's low energy using reusable media it's but ugly simple. Uh, you know the The challenge for the team at Los Alamos was how do we come up with something that we could literally put out uh, in you know Western Africa? And someone with no education, no engineering experience could treat water. you know basically, you open a valve, water goes through some tanks full of media, it comes out clean the other side that 's it. no additives, no consumables, nothing pretty cool you know so so that 's what these guys did and and you know the only energy requirement is uh, is some pumps. Now, our company, Nine Power Clean Water, did a deal with Los Alamos and University of Texas, New Mexico Tech. Uh, to commercialize the technology, so we're not we're not like a regular commercial firm. Our our challenge, our goal, uh, our mission, if you will, is to see widespread adoption of this technology around the world. Because the taxpayers, the U.S. taxpayers, spent you know tens of millions of dollars uh, developing the technology, and it's to help make the oil and gas industry do a little bit better job. And along the way, it turns out it was cheaper. Uh, It is cheaper uh, in a lot of cases to treat water than it is to dispose of it by any method. So this is the ultimate win-win. And it's kind of unusual that a government laboratory, uh, although they do tech commercialization, you know, every day, but that they're having such a huge impact on such enormous problem from a cost standpoint and also from an environmental standpoint, you know, simultaneously,
1: so, can you just quickly explain what's the essence of the the technology that makes this possible?
0: Well, part of it is splitting up. Instead of saying, well, I've got to, you know, I'm going to put everything into a pressure cooker and I'm going to, you know, distill the water, right? It comes up as vapor, it gets uh, condensed into a cold coil. That's, you know, that's classic. How do you make beer? How do you make whiskey? Uh, but it's very energy intensive. Uh, It gets away from this idea of all all at once approach and breaks out the treatment into specific components based on what's in the water, how much of the contaminants are in the water, and then what do you want to do with the water. So it's more of a prescriptive approach because produced water, despite the fact that you know, I bet people generally think that oil is oil. It's not. Uh, You know, oil quality, viscosity. You know, uh, you know what's in the oil is going to vary. All over, sometimes within a county, right? Much less a state or the country or around the world. Um, so the same goes for produced water. It's going to vary depending on the formation. You might like we we've we've got test data like you wouldn't believe. So we see constantly different chemical analysis, and we might see a well you know down uh, in southeast New Mexico or West Texas that's it's an oil well producing uh, you know contaminated water because that's what happens. Uh, Every time you bring oil or gas up, you get this, again, this uh, formation production water. And it's got a lot of salt. You know, maybe, um, you know, it's four times saltier than seawater. And then you uh, drive 200 yards away or walk 200 yards over, and you've got a well right there that's bringing up water that's got, you know, salt levels that are not four times the amount of seawater, but maybe 25 percent or one-fourth the amount of salt that you find in seawater. Uh so you get this wide variance, and that's been traditionally one of the problems. You know, the oil and gas industry, when they when although their product will come up with a lot of variation in it depending on your geography, if they need to buy a pickup truck, they go buy a pickup truck. It's not like they buy a pickup truck that's special for the oil and gas industry. Um there's a lot of specialized equipment, but it's pretty standardized. Uh, you know, they need a generator. So they're gonna go buy a generator that's got a certain output and burns a certain amount of diesel or whatever. You know, and they can move that generator all over the world, and it's the same asset. It's different with this water treatment because you're in a, in a, in essence you're refining a product, although in this case it's a waste product, and you're doing so, uh, you know, based on a lot of variabilities: the age of the well, the the geology, you know, and uh, in some cases. Uh, you know, when did, when, did, uh, when did it rain recently? And so there's, there's extra water in, you know, an open pond that they're, they're putting the uh, produced water in to, for temporary storage. All that stuff has an impact on the treatment train required. And unfortunately, the treatment of produced water started out of the freshwater and wastewater industries. You know, big companies like v- GE and Veolia would come in and say, well, gee, you know, we clean water all the time. And they do, and municipal water systems. But that's pretty clean water. You know, you don't you're not talking about industrial wastewater going into your drinking water system. So, you know, they'll add some flocculants and the stuff will settle out, they'll clarify it, and they'll put some fluoride in it, and maybe some kind of bacteriocyte, and bango, they're done. I mean, that's really easy water treatment. Well, those same guys have been trying to work in the oil and gas industry for fifty years and they've been really, really unsuccessful because uh, the variation of the produced water is so wide and the amount of contaminants and the severity of those contaminants uh, you know, will vary, as I said, all over the place. And so you really have to have a more prescriptive approach. And that's what these guys at Los Alamos did. They said, look, let's take uh, volatile organics and let's class them all together. And let's say we're going to figure out a way to, to adsorb, not absorb, but adsorb, um, volatile organics. And so they came up with this really cool media that's dirt cheap, uh, that's reusable, unlike activated carbon. And it pulls out all the BTEX, the stuff that I mentioned earlier, benzene, stuff like that. Uh, slightly different media will pull out all the metals or heavy metals. Um, and then so each step along the way, you're gradually getting cleaner and cleaner water. And, and that's why this is a little bit different approach. But again, it was done... Uh, you know, by the Department of Energy, along with the oil and gas industry. So, so really, this is a you know much more of a proactive approach to dealing with a, a waste problem uh, than just sort of trying to hide it or throw it away. Um, this is more akin to separating your trash uh, and then recycling what you can: aluminum cans, cardboard, uh, you know, paper from the office, what they call clean paper, newsprint. And, uh, and plastics, right? All that's got to be sorted out. Same idea with treating produced water. Um, and traditionally, the treatment of produced water has been take it to the dump. Well, just like, you know, uh, we got better, uh, you know, uh, humanity got better at dealing with its trash resources from consumer and industrial stuff. And, you know, we recycle iron and steel and all this stuff. We're, we're doing a better job now of, of closing that water cycle so that we can take advantage of this water as a new source of water and not just treat it as trash.
1: Yeah, this is just a fascinating area of development. I mean, I was, I was reading recently about uh, seemingly record uh, economics in terms of uh, just desalinating seawater with uh, an Israeli company and in general I, I see a lot of effort in this area just I mean it seems like you know 10 20 years we're gonna be able to purify just about anything which just is this amazing human capability to have given the natural
0: ratio between uh, non-drinkable and drinkable water and right right and that's exactly right and and you know we you know it's advanced materials or taking a look at older materials you know most of the uh, media that we use is naturally mined and then we alter it to give it a better you know stronger chemical structure uh and we do it using innocuous chemicals so you don't have to you know worry about you know if, if you come up with a media to treat water and the media itself is is uh toxic then that's no good Um, so, so having something that's renewable, that's quote unquote, I don't know, I hate the term green, you know, green to me is not a destination. Green is a, is a trip or a journey, uh, doing better and better is what all energy industries have done from nuclear to oil and gas to solar to wind. I mean, everybody strives for greater efficiencies because it makes better business sense. And then the environmental impact is also lessened. And you know, I've talked to thousands of oil guys and traveled the world, I've been I've been to oil fields in Siberia, to Kazakhstan, the Middle East, Latin America, all across the US. And I've never met somebody even working on a rig that didn't care about the environment. You know, they're very, very conscious of that what they're doing is supposed to, you know, uh provide a source uh, uh, of, of energy that can be converted to power and do so in a way that leaves the least impact possible. Um so so you know the guys out working in the field love the idea of taking something that's been kind of a big hassle, it's cost a lot of money, uh that that liability and turning it into an asset. And this is not the bookkeepers, these are the, these are the rig crew workers. They think it's just a great idea. You know, less hassle, plus there's a side benefit. I mean, who wouldn't like that? So so you know we we are very very uh, encouraged by what, you know, what's been able to be achieved over the last you know, 20 years with the oil and gas industry to continue this continual process improvement. And some of it's dri- driven by regulations. Uh, some of it's driven by money, but we've got kind of a nice mix there of you know, cutting cost and, and uh, regulatory bodies wanting the industry to do better and better.
1: All right. Well, that, that is such an interesting subject. I went longer on that than I expected. So we're going to have to talk about nuclear much more quickly, but I at least want to maybe we can talk about it more sometime. But I want to at least get an overview since I, I promised uh, people something on it. So tell us, just give us an overview about what I believe it's called micronuclear power, right. what that is, and then sort of how that fits into the other forms of, of nuclear power.
0: So let me back up and tell you a little bit about Nine Power. Again, we've got this kind of we're kind of a uh, a weird company because we're a public private partnership. We receive uh, rights to commercialize taxpayer funded technology in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, in Kazakhstan and Russia, now in Latvia, where we go in and we say, look, we can deploy this technology into real products that sell, and then we're going to pay a royalty back to the government to help replenish the coffers. And, you know, humanity is going to benefit. So that's what Nine Power does. Prior to us working on the water company, we spent a bunch of years and created the first commercial small nuclear power company. And uh, there's a lot of ways to express this this idea behind micro nuclear power or small nuclear power, but th- it's got some consistent and key attributes. One of the attributes is this idea that nuclear power currently is centralized, and there's good reasons for it being centralized. Uh, and it's large. You know, if you are a, a you know power plant operator or utility, and you want to use nuclear power for all its benefits, right, extremely green, virtually no emissions, really cheap uh, you know, compared to anything else and from a total planetary impact standpoint. you know, Nuclear power is the only base load that lets you do that. You, know, you won't get it out of renewables or uh, undependables. Uh, you won't get it out of natural gas. Natural gas is halfway there, right, but nuclear power is incredibly clean and incredibly safe. Let's set that aside as one point. The second point, though, is that by centralizing nuclear power plants, you're doing two things. One, really only big populations can afford to put up nuclear power plants, right? You've got to have a major usage somewhere nearby in order to justify the enormous expense of, of a traditional nuclear power plant. And you know, nucle- uh, all power plants became centralized to a certain degree because it is an effort to reduce impact. And to put the factory that makes electrons, right, in a place uh, with highly educated people that can run those, those electron-producing factories, the problem is distribution. You lose so much in distribution if you want to go great distances that you know really big power plants belong with big populations. So the idea behind, behind small or modular uh, nuclear power is let's take the advantages of nuclear power and let's distribute it. Right in the same way that the internet is a distributed computational and communication resource, uh, let's distribute power generation. Oh, by the way, in the same way that wind and solar are distributed, right? You know, I I I, I laugh every time somebody says, uh, "Gee, it would only take a solar panel the size of Kansas to power the U.S." And then the world's biggest container of Windex, you know, and large paper towels. Uh, you know, that's what I imagine. It's like some giant will run. Well, this, I like how people don't.
1: People think that that's not like a lot of. Uh, construction.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a huge impact. And, you know, just even having the rare earth minerals and the precious metals in order to do that and the impact. And, I mean, making solar, you know, PV solar, even thermal solar is incredibly dirty. Um, you know, the, in terms of a total planetary impact, you know, I, I'd be happy to debate this with anybody that wants me to. Nuclear power is the safest, cleanest way to generate electrons. Uh, any conversion from energy to power, right? is gonna be dangerous um i used to tell people you know i found it remarkable that the government would let my mother pump her own gas because you know my mother god love her, she was just this wonderful woman but you know she was not incredibly physically able and she was also not uh you know she got distracted easy and and so you know if you think about sort of the the risk that goes along with converting you know uh energy to power oh my god filling up your gas tank is like the most dangerous thing that a, you know pedestrian will ever do but nevertheless uh so the idea with nuclear power small nuclear power is let's distribute those resources let's get them close to the people now how do we do that well the first nuclear reactors were small right i mean they weren't huge they weren't gigawatt sized plants um so let's go back to some of that And this started in sort of 80, uh, excuse me, 2004, 2005, uh, led by the U.S. uh, And now you have maybe, I don't know, a half a dozen companies out there flogging a uh, in the marketplace, an idea for small distributed nuclear power. Here's the problem. The idea behind this was, let's make, you know, let's make these power plants in a factory, right you want to get quality control down you want to reduce impact we'll make them in a factory and we'll we'll take them out and put a bunch of them together and we'll make a big power plant so the current mode or the current economic driver between modular reactors kind of doesn't work because all these guys are doing is they're saying well we're going to build big plants but we're going to do it with a bunch of small reactors uh, you know i guess there's there could be some savings but right now SMRs uh small modular reactors look to be more expensive than just building one big ass or two big ass reactors and running some turbines off them. So so this is kind of a US perspective and the US is tainted. You know, we're 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 ex- incredibly rich in knowledge and in resources and in, you know, money. And so uh the idea of doing uh sort of the next generation of nuclear power Is really around big plants in the US. It's not that way in the rest of the world. You know, the Russians, uh, who, and and even the Chinese, are are getting the sort of grip on let's do distributed power generation. Let's use uh, small distributed nuclear power plants as a way to provide baseload energy. And then if if you've got some subsidy for doing wind or solar, great you know when they're working whatever it is 15 or 20% of the time you can generate some electricity from from those things but you when people turn on the lights generally they want to turn on the lights they don't want to go well you know the sun's down and and you know our batteries only store an hour worth of electricity so so the idea of baseload clean baseload is 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 what people want and really only a third of the planet currently has it uh, a third of the planet has intermittent, and a third of the planet really doesn't have access to electricity. So the idea with small distributed nuclear power plants is let's take all the advantages of nuclear power and let's put it out where people need it, in small communities or for mining, uh, for oil and gas extraction. And the company that we ran a number of years ago, which to be blunt is now defunct, but the company that we ran was a uh, you know the first one out of the chute and a first. Commercial- in a commercial sense, um, and we went straight into you know the government bureaucracy in the United States. Uh, a bunch of years ago, a Navy admiral named Hyman Rickover decided that he was going to standardize on, on a certain kind of nuclear reactor for propulsion, for subs and for surface ships. And that's what's referred to as a light water reactor, right? It just means that water is used as a moderator for the fission and it's also the working fluid to turn a turbine. So, you know, with nuclear power, you're basically boiling water, creating steam. That gets under pressure, goes into a, uh, you know, to a device that spins uh, with some magnets and it makes electrons, right? That's how power is generated. So nuclear power is just a different way to heat the water, Um, instead of using something that's, uh, you know, coal or natural gas or something like that. So so the idea behind the U.S. nuclear industry is we're going to build one kind of reactor. uh, Again, it's referred to as light water because it's just regular H2O. Canadians famously, famously use heavy water, but they don't use highly enriched uranium. Uh, you know, as a fuel, they use uh, naturally enriched uranium. So they require big plants and the fuel doesn't last as long, but the, you know, the, the the working fluid and the moderator work in a special way to sort of extract as much energy out of it. Um, the, you know, India is, is playing around with uh, different kinds of fuels that turn into uranium. Um, the Russians have got highly enriched uranium and other fission products from their own nuclear weapons complex and they ship a bunch of that to the US and we we convert it and power you know some of our, our nuclear power plants here. There's a hundred nuclear reactors, large scale nuclear reactors in the US, uh, generating about 20% of the total electricity, closer to 30% of the baseload electricity. And they're workhorses, you know, they've essentially been replaced over time. Um, there was a couple very famous accidents that happened when I was younger. Um, I'm not that old, but you know, I, I was old enough to remember three mile Island, uh, which was a huge success story because, uh, although there was a problem with the power plant, it did not, uh, you know, contaminate the community. Uh, it certainly didn't, you know, didn't kill anyone. Um, Fukushima, uh, more people died, uh, from the anxiety of having to evacuate the area than from the radioactivity, uh, that spread there. And, the manufacturer of the Fukushima plant said, "Don't put it on a coast because you might have a big tidal wave come in, and then you drown out the auxiliary, uh, you know, power generators, which might cause the uh, reactor to scram because you don't have enough, you know, cooling coolant water going through it." So the, you we have two or three big accidents that have happened that turned a lot of people off to nuclear power, but it's the same thing as, uh, you know, having two or three airplane accidents. Um, it's unfortunate. Uh, we get better at what we're doing, but the, the total number of people killed uh, because of power generation, nuclear power doesn't even show up on the list. Uh, y- you know, uh, coal plants produce enough uh, emissions that cause, according to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in a study that's now probably six years old, but they projected 10,000 people a year die from exposure to coal power plants. Um, you know, natural gas has its advantages, but all everything has its disadvantages. Again, you're you're taking you know energy and turning it into power. Uh, you're you're gonna have waste products. You're gonna have risk. And so what you'd like to do is minimize all that. And you know, uh, solar and wind are not, and certainly wave are not panaceas. There's always going to be an impact. And so, to a certain extent, it comes down to economics. And uh, what you can do to make power to make electron generation safer and safer. So, getting back to small uh, nuclear power plants. So, so yeah, I'm
1: particularly I interested
0: in the economics of those because if you don't have <laughs> yeah. the economics, then it's not going to work, right? Well, this is sort of a problem, and 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 um, it's a problem in the U.S. because although I'm not currently in the industry, I'm st- I still often talk about it and spend a lot of time looking at the industry. It doesn't seem like the economics are going to be there for this first generation of small modular reactors. They may, in fact, end up being more expensive than just building, you know, a big complex, you know, existing, you know, gigawatt or 750 megawatt, uh, you know, thermal nuclear reactor. So, So what are we doing in the U.S. is the question. Part of this has to do with the fact, though, that the U.S. Department of Energy has been very clear and they... You know, although the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission does not work for the DOE, they're separate, they collaborate a lot. And a few years ago, a guy named John Kelly, who is the head of new reactors as the DOE, stood up and said, we're not going to do anything in small reactors except for light water reactors for the foreseeable future. Um, so that meant anybody that's got a better idea for a nuclear power plant that's small, maybe it's more, you know, the reactor itself is better suited to small generation, was shut out. So now what you have are very large companies uh, and a couple startups trying to make light water reactors because that's sort of what the U.S. bureaucracy wants to see, and they're not going to be economically efficient. So what's going to happen with small modular reactors in the U.S.? I predict failure. I do not believe the U.S. is going to, you know, like the flat screen displays, like LCD displays and a bunch of other technologies that the U.S. invented, I believe other countries are going to refine these ideas. And they're going to do that by using different kinds of reactors that don't rely on the current concept of fuel cycle, uh, the current, uh, you know, working fluid and moderator, uh, you know, being light water. All that stuff is is uh, is working against us here. Um, the nuclear power industry did this to themselves. You know, you you can't have an industry that says, "Gee, we've got the safest thing in the world," but by the way, we put all these protective things on it so that it's even safer and safer, and it's it's a one in cajillion chance that you're going to be impacted by nuclear power. Uh, you know, that in this in this sort of uh, big company stranglehold. That's been put on power generation by the nuclear power guys through their own self-interest is going to essentially kill small, distributed nuclear power generation in the U.S. for our lifetime. Uh, you may have a couple plants that come out, but the, the economics are not going to be there. They're not going to have factories producing a bunch of plants. They're not going to get economies of scale. It's just, it's just, uh, it's doomed. Now, other countries have an opportunity to do this, and I see that happening. I see it happening in Russia. I see it happening in China, uh, Brazil, um, Kazakhstan. You know, uh, even the Ukraine is is looking at at modular reactors, but they're not just trying to miniaturize these massive plants uh, that we've built in the U.S. There's lots of different ways to uh, moderate fission and to turn... That heat energy through a working fluid into generating electrons, and until the current guard at the DOE retires or dies off, I don't think you're going to have um, modular reactors in the U.S. Well, that's not too thrilling a prospect. Um, well, I mean, it's you know, it, 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 for a chance of fate, you know, we wouldn't have horizontal drilling in the U.S. We led the world in that. But there was a couple visionary guys in Congress that really pushed in the money to do it. Now there's been some money spending on small uh, modular reactors, and you know they're learning stuff. But there's no effort to embrace this, and part of it has to do with the fact that it's nuclear. I mean, you you can't get you know most of the country to agree that nuclear power is even safe. Uh, they don't they don't understand how it works. They think it's some magical box that elicits, you know, radiation that can mutate people into, you know, uh, farm animals or something. I mean, you know, the the anti-nuclear crowd has done a very, very good uh, job of completely ruining the advantages of nuclear power in the public perception. And the problem is the national, uh, the Nuclear Energy Association, the the industry's, uh, you know, sort of lobbying group doesn 't really do a very good job of, of articulating the advantages of nuclear power either they 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 sort of subscribe to the uh, you know any press is bad press kind of thing um, and there 's a lot of misunderstanding out there and uh, you know it's it 's kind of tainted the industry in the u s so hundred years from now, I predict we 're going to have a bunch of windmills in, you know in the middle of the country and somebody 's going to figure out how to to deal with storage and then you know countries like Nigeria are going to have these cool little uh, nuclear power plants that would fit in the back of a Volkswagen Bug, and you know they're they're generating electricity that way. Uh, so our way will cost more money, will take up more land, will create more risk, kill more people. But it's a perception thing. You know, uh, gee, uh, what could go wrong with a, a wind turbine? Uh, you know, well, gee, uh, th- lots of things go wrong with wind turbines. Uh, the, not the least of which is people fall off them. Uh, there is more danger you know i get, I used to say that if we killed as many people in the nuclear industry in the u s every year as we do in the wind turbine industry, they 'd shut down every one of those plants overnight uh, you know it, you know the question is how dead do you want to be and and nuclear power is continuously being improved and is is really is the cleanest, safest way to go. The expense side, which you brought up to begin with, and i kind of rambled on here, but the expense side is not directly related to regulatory. Uh, it's, it's a secondary thing. Um, but regulatory uh, requirements and safety requirements uh, are alone not the reason why uh, it's, it's uh, difficult to make the economics for nuclear power in the U.S. work. The bottom line is that big... Complex, expensive machines, large power plants, are big, complex, and expensive. And you're not going to get around that. Um, this is akin to you know commuting to work on a 747. Uh, you know it, th- th- that would be ridiculous. Why don't I create something that's small that uses different technology that allows me to just zip over to work? It's a mile away. Why do I need to drive to the airport and to you know get on a big airplane to fly one mile? I mean, that's sort of been the, you know, bigger is better, and it'll cost more, and the bankers will make more money, and, and uh, you know, this thing will last for 60 years. I mean, that's been the approach with nuclear power in, in really just, I'll, I'll say U.S. and, and, uh, and Canada. Uh, the rest of the world has always looked at, to a certain extent, always looked at nuclear power as something that you can evolve, you can change, you can get better with, and they're doing it. And we'll be left behind as a country.
1: All right. Well, here at Center for Industrial Progress, we'll see if we can make any changes in cultural perception. But uh, in any case, the information you gave today is super valuable. Is there any way, I don't know if you've written on this, uh, but if if there's a website you want to direct people to, go for it.
0: Well, I think that, that the, um, you know, you could go to IX Power. We spelled nine power with a Roman numeral nine because we thought it was cute. Uh, also, it's named after a fictional planet in a science fiction book. Go to ixpower.com and you'll see lots of different discussions uh, about water and power and energy. And, uh, you know, we're continually updating, continually doing a better job uh, making that happen. Awesome. Well, John, thanks for the info. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very
1: much. Appreciate it, Alex. Thanks again to John Grizz Deal for coming on the program. One big announcement. I won't say too much about uh, the content. I said a little bit up front, and it was a pretty long episode, so I won't uh, go into any kind of elaboration except to say that I think these, these kinds of issues are cool, and our culture should be thinking more about how to develop new technologies that build on the existing best technologies versus thinking somehow of technology as trying to improve upon the worst technology that I mean, people can do that, uh, but there are many reasons why that, that is not promising, and it certainly shouldn't be the default thing to be encouraged, let alone celebrated. Um, but anyway, in terms of just things I want to remind everyone of, uh, I always do this, but I want to particularly emphasize it, getting on the mailing list, which you can get to at industrialprogress.com. It's in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, the reason I mention that is because basically everything we do we announce on that list uh so it's it's a very good hub for everything else, and we've got a lot coming in the next couple months, including we're we're relaunching the whole company and we're going to have a new name and a lot of stuff that's even much more exciting than a new name so I, I've been developing new content over the past couple months i'd say it's the most substantial work I've done since the moral case for fossil fuels Uh, in some ways. I think it's a major upgrade of some of the material in the moral case for fossil fuels. So that will all come through that mailing list. You'll hear about it first uh, there, so just make sure to be there. So that's just the one thing I want to absolutely drive home. The usual kinds of reminders if you want to get better at having discussions with people, at having debates with people, at, at turning what could be arguments into constructive discussions, check out energychampion.net. That's energychampion.net for the course, How to Talk to Anyone About Energy. Also, we're on social media, Facebook. Uh, why am I forgetting this? Twitter. Those are the major platforms. There's Alex Epstein. There's Center for Industrial Progress. There's I Love Fossil Fuels. There's I Love Nuclear. Most of the stuff is coming out through the Alex Epstein accounts. So uh, if you follow one of them, follow that one. Particularly on Twitter, we're up to 22,000 or so followers that have been getting a lot of action. And we're pretty good at posting just about everything to Twitter. So it's, it's comparable to the mailing list in that respect. But mailing list, I think, is a way better a way of making sure you get everything. Plus, it's once a week, so it's not not so overwhelming. But uh, if you follow those, you've seen lots of action. Lately, I did a an interview with Dave Rubin of the Rubin Report. That went about an hour. Then after that interview, there were all these comments, and people are saying, like, what do you say to this? What do you say to this? And so I decided to respond to uh, the top 100 YouTube comments on the full interview and just have a discussion with people, not not in typing, but just orally explaining how I would respond to these kinds of comments in person. Now, I should say on a technical note, someone pointed out that I technically didn't do the top 100 comments because I followed too many of the responses. I don't know. I don't have that much YouTube sophistication, but if you want to watch two hours and 20 minutes of really delving into some of these issues surrounding energy and environment, plus looking at the methodology uh, by which we discuss these issues which is often the wrong methodology uh, I think it's pretty interesting so um, you, know, you can uh, you can find that on YouTube if you just search uh, Alex Epstein Rubin report or if you're on our newsletter you would have de- you would have already had this information so another reason to get there alright so to wrap up now I'm gonna change one little thing I say as usual if you have questions comments love mail or hate mail uh, Email them to support at industrialprogress.net rather than alex at industrialprogress.net. The reason is, is that I get directly the things from support, uh, but so does my assistant, and she is very good at making sure that things get followed up on if they need to get followed up on. So if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, contact me at support at industrialprogress.net. All right. We're looking at a couple of guests for upcoming weeks and months, so we should be back at some point. I'm not sure when, but it'll be a great guest. I can promise you that. So until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.